Great. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is the second episode of the Architecture Podcast. As a reminder, this is a separate uh, stream of interviews uh, that we're doing weekly about the latest news, events, trends, etc. There's still the subscription service at Marketecture.tv with in-depth interviews of leading technology executives. So today I'm joined by Eric Franchi, the general manager of Aperium Ventures, and my old friend Tony Katzer, the CEO of the IAB Tech Lab. So thanks, guys, for being here. Thanks, Ari. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well, Eric. You too. Uh, so Tony has a new job, relatively new, a CEO of IAB Tech Lab. I'm kind of, it sounds like a really cool job. I've known Tony since we were both at DoubleClick, well before the Google acquisition. I remember my first memory of him was him yelling at me. This is how old it was. We weren't yet an agile shop, so our engineering was all waterfall. And Tony was in charge of the waterfall spreadsheet about who was going to get resources, <laughs> which product managers were going to beg and plead to get some resources so we could actually build something. And I wanted more resources, and Tony like yelled at me for touching his spreadsheet. That's my earliest memory. Oh, my God. That's incredible. I've just been introduced to the industry as an ogre. <laughs> Well, for those of you, this is an audio-only audio podcast, and for those of you who don't know Tony, he, he more or less looks like uh, the mountain from Game of Thrones. He's a bit of a uh, intimidating figure. Oh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Are you regretting joining this podcast yet? Yeah, I'm about to. <laughs> All right, so let's talk exciting stuff. So what does it mean to be the CEO of the IB Tech Lab? Uh, it means you sleep well on Friday nights. No, I, the, the, to be the CEO of the Ivy Tech Lab, the big reason I took the job for really three or four major reasons. One was um, it was a nice blend of just engineering and product background. And then throughout my career, I moved over to the business side of our industry. So it was this kind of nexus of just business acumen and my tech and product background. And then the other reasons were... Look, the industry is facing big challenges. Some would say existential crises in areas of privacy, identity. You know, I, I do think we have finally entered the year of mobile. That was a joke. Um, but no, I mean, advanced, <laughs> advanced, advanced TV. I mean, with, with advanced TV and the migration of billions of dollars from traditional linear TV into connected television is, I think, a massive opportunity for digital advertising. And really ongoing issues in the areas of supply chain security, fraud, like there's just all these kind of watershed moments that are occurring simultaneously. Like if I think of the industry over the past 25 years, I think there have been two watershed moments. One was the invention of the ad server. And I think second was the invention of RTB. I think those were two, you know, really growth moments for the industry. And now we're simultaneously experiencing existential challenges as well as growth opportunities, as well as, you know, kind of risk mitigation, watershed moments for the ecosystem. So that was the second reason. It was just like, wow, big problems to tackle, which if we can get it right, I think unlock a tremendous amount of growth for the ecosystem. If we get it wrong, I think it's going to lead to ongoing problems and challenges for the industry. So that was the second reason. The third was, you know, I think it was really an opportunity for me to quote unquote, give back, you know, this industry's put food on my table for, you know, two decades. And so the ability for me to address the first two things in my career while also trying to make a meaningful difference for this industry where I've made a lot of friends such as yourself and others and continue to facilitate the growth of an industry I deeply believe in and people that I, I also support and believe in was something that kind of inspired me at this stage in my career. So those are my big reasons mm -hmm. for, for taking on the job. 
Totally. And by all accounts, the IAB Tech Lab has been a huge success. So um, back in the day, um, there was no IAB Tech Lab maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. You probably have the data better than I do. And the IAB sort of struggled with a lot of its standard writing and standard um, deployment. I, I saw this firsthand when I helped build Vast. I was off on an island just writing specs by myself with no support. And then Rand Rothenberg, um, you know, found the investment, created the IB Tech Lab. And since then, the professionalism and quality of the work at the IB is, you know, at next level and really made a big impact. You're close on the date. It was spun out. It'll be the nine-year anniversary of the Tech Lab spin out from the IB yeah. in March. Of, it was done in March of 2014. We're about two months away, a month and a half away from that anniversary. And look, Randall will always credit you, Ari, with the Ivy Tech Lab was your idea. He, <laughs> he will always, always credit with you that. And I think others in the industry agree with that. So thanks for spinning it out or else I wouldn't have this job. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to toot my own. There'll be plenty of opportunities for, for me to toot my own horn, but that, that, I was going to let that one go. Uh, so you, you recently published a roadmap, which was kind of cool. So there's a press release, the IAB Tech Lab priorities for 2023. What was the thinking behind publishing that roadmap? And what are the kind of the, the quick hits on what you're hoping to accomplish this year? Well, I mean, we've, we've been publishing the roadmap now for a number of years. And, you know, it's really to put product uh, leadership and engineering leadership on, on notice or keep the market informed of these are the key issues that we see as an ecosystem. And these are things that product leadership and engineering leadership and, and business leadership need to take into consideration when they're planning their 2023 or in some cases 2024. Some of our, some of our specs and updated standards won't come out until Q3 and Q4 of this year. So we'll have 2024 implications. Yeah. You know, and what drove the roadmap, there were really four key pillars that were, were heavily focused on at the tech lab. Um, the first one is privacy. And you can't really talk about privacy without talking about identity and addressability. And that is when I refer to existential challenges or crises in the industry, it's around privacy. I mean, it's clear that consumers are, you know, privacy is entitled to social conscious of consumers. It is at the front of most government regulatory institutions as a, as a consideration for areas of regulation. And then there, you know, there's also machinations within big tech, you know, Google and Apple around further locking down, you know, privacy in some of their operating systems or browser apps or mobile operating systems. So privacy is at the forefront of our roadmap and it's going to, it's going to remain at the forefront of our roadmap, at least I see for the next five years. At least that's sure. what I've communicated to the tech lab board. It's not going away. And if anything, it's going to get what I call frothier over the next several years. You've got five privacy laws here in the U.S. that are now going live or are going to go live this year in 23. And there's 10 more now at the latest count that are being deliberated on state capital floors this year. New York, Oklahoma, Texas, just to name a few in terms of privacy laws that could get, could get passed this year and then probably put into effect in 2024. So uh, we're dealing with a patchwork of privacy regulations across the U.S., which is going to make privacy compliance more complex and more challenging. GDPR you know, continues to evolve in terms of interpretation of those regulations across Europe. Let me, you know, let me just the, the, interrupt for one second. How, how does the IB Tech Lab interact when there are private companies like Google um, who are pushing their own standards um, like through the flock or topics or, or whatnot. Are you an do you just stand back and advise or are you more dependent on working groups and other things like that? 
it's a bit of both. We get our input from the working group. There's nothing that we, we don't do anything in tech lab behind closed doors, but everything is, everything is developed out in the open with our working groups. So in terms of something like Google's topics and fledge, you know, we've had conversations with Google about, you know, with the Chrome team about this, you know, talking about, is there a role for Tech Lab to educate the industry on this, to get people up to speed on it? You know, we have had conversations with them where we've, you know, had educational sessions with the Chrome engineering team. I mean, the Chrome engineering team is not steeped in ad tech. They're steeped in client-side browser technologies. Um, so we've had conversations with them on how the advertising ecosystem works to better inform their development. I mean, candidly, I'm a bigger fan of open technical standards than closed proprietary uh, technical solutions. So, I mean, I'd love to see it become a tech lab initiative or some open open source initiative for the industry. But, you know, Chrome's remit currently is that it will be a Chrome project. So we typically take an advisory capacity or an educational capacity. And some of that is driven by feedback from our working groups. Um, and some of that is just manifested within tech lab leadership in terms of this is what we need to educate the Chrome or Android teams on. Yeah, I always thought, uh, I, I've said this before, but it, the world would be so much easier if Google just accepted SCAD network, just like said, fine, Apple, we, we're never going to agree on anything, but we'll just accept your standard and put it in Chrome. Um, and then everyone would have one standard for everyone to work on, but that'll never happen. Eric, I, I kind of want to ask you, like, it, it seems to me like as the IB um, or as the industry adopts a new standard, it opens up opportunity. Um, you think about VAST and the ability for ad networks to get their tags and video players or pre-bid. So uh, how does uh, any uh, insights from your portfolio or from what you're seeing in the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think they, they map quite well for the most part to, you know, these areas of priorities that are, are on the press release, right? Those companies that are focused on identity and, you know, compliance, uh, you know, they're doing quite well. I think we've seen an uptick, uh, over the course of the past six months or so on companies focused a little bit more on the compliance side, right? Because it seems like the identity winners, so to speak, right? And that's, you know, winners, you know, plural, um, are, are emerging. So then it's like, how, you know, do you help marketers on the compliance side? You know, CTV, advanced TV, you know, the, the obvious areas of growth and, and opportunity, not much more to be stated there, as is the, you know, the, the, the retail and, and commerce media side. The, the one that's, you know, been a bit of a sleeper, I'm leaning into more, I'm fascinated with. And, you know, my question for Tony is a little bit of just like, Hey, you, you laid out the mention of the ad server, the invention of, you know, RTB, my, my, my big question for you, and we can, we can table this until later is like, what, what do you think the, the next big one is? You know, this move towards sustainability is pretty big. And there's, uh, you know, or at least a handful of companies that are, um, you know, doing some interesting things. So yeah, I, I think they map quite well to, um, what the, you know, sort of like roadmap is. Is the IB yeah, doing no. anything on sustainability? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a priority. Right. You gotta read the press release. Yeah. Sorry. We are going to be announcing, uh, we are going to be announcing at ALM and we do have press teed up for next week on the Tech Lab green roadmap. And the way we see our role there is Tech Lab's role is to manifest data and telemetry for the industry to put to use in either a private company fashion, like things like the transparency center, right? Like how do we manifest telemetry around what standards are in use? You know, ads.txt versus sellers.json. Synergy, like, you know, how far off is someone's ads.txt versus their sellers.json file? Um, so manifesting raw data to the industry to then put to use for things like 
green supply path optimization, you know, better ad operational best practices for, you know, greener media. So those are the, that's Tech Lab's role. And that's going to be the roadmap that we're going to announce next week. You know, we're working with AdNet Zero on this. Um, you know, uh, we're working with Scope 3 and Impact Plus on just like, what is the date of the industry? We need to surface to the industry for the industry then to start commercializing green initiatives or productizing green initiatives across the ecosystem. Quick editorial note, which is uh, there's a full video of my interview with Brian O'Kelly from Scoop 3 that is uh, free with login. You don't need to be an architecture subscriber. So check that out. Sorry. Now back to our regular scheduled programming. Yeah, Aaron. on the on, on the green stuff, and we can we can move off of this um, from from here because there's a bunch of stuff we want to get into. How big do you think that is in terms of being a, a vector of transformation? Because some of the data that I see, you know, maps a mission to user experience, maps a mission to you know, like higher quality ad that could have an effect on performance maps it to like all sorts of things that I think could, could significantly change like what a web page looks like, what an ad experience looks like. Do you think, Tony, that this is like more at this point, like hype than, than reality? Or is it, um, do you think this is, this can be a big one? I don't think it's so much hype. I think you could, I would say we're, we're somewhat early in the green curve, but I see a lot of parallels with privacy in terms of this is coming, right? Like, the, you know, the, the privacy wave has been coming for years. I think the green wave is coming. And if you look at it from in terms of just consumer sentiment, like more consumers are sensitive to how carbon friendly their brands are. And that that is somewhat generational. Like my mom's not about to switch brands based on some brand's green footprint, but younger generations, perhaps Gen X and millennials and Gen Zs are much more sensitive to how green their brands are. So brands are becoming more attuned to it and sensitive to it. So there's there's this general kind of social inertia that's building, much like privacy, where consumers are saying, look, I'm concerned about my privacy. And now they're like, I'm concerned about how green my brands are that I use. That's number one. Number two, government regulation around carbon footprints for brands specifically, like it, it is coming. The SEC is starting to mandate reporting carbon in your quarterly and annual filings moving forward. Like there will be regulation around that. So again, like privacy, there's kind of this this inertia building around certain areas of green, like, does it happen overnight? No, but, pri- you know, the, the issues we're facing around privacy didn't happen overnight, too. That manifested over, you know, a fairly long period of time. And I see a lot of parallels with what's happening in green is very similar to privacy. So I do think it's going to be a big issue that we, you know, my preference is for Tech Lab to get ahead of these things. Um, I think there's some things, frankly, just, you know, historically, Tech Lab may have been behind the ball on. Uh, my preference is to get ahead of these things, even if we publish standards or frameworks that are not heavily used this year. But if they're there and available and can be augmented in the future quickly, available to the ecosystem, I think it allows us to get ahead of ahead of what's yeah. what, what's going to happen. I have an additional take on this, which is the problem in ad tech has often been a tragedy of the commons problem, which is adding more ad tech always could generate another penny for every publisher. So having 10 SSPs in your header versus 11 versus 12, there's effectively no cost to the publisher and they would make another penny or another dime on CDN. Just, just a line um, of JavaScript, baby. 
just align with JavaScript, right? And and you can make the counter argument like it affected user experience or latency, but those have always been soft arguments and hard to measure. And the green measurement, assuming that it is consistent and makes sense, is finally the first thing that can be the counterbalance where you have a trade-off. I could add this tag to the page, but I'm going to have to increase my carbon credits or, or something, some other mechanism like that. And that's why it will end up being very correlated with user experience and very correlated with some of the good things we want out of ad- digital advertising, like viewability, impact, et cetera. To that point, Ari, just to put a, an exclamation point on that, I think green is going to move the needle around supply path optimization more than fraud. I agree. I agree. Um, supply path optimization is a very obvious low-hanging fruit for green. And I asked uh, O'Kelly about this when I interviewed him, and I asked him, like, are, isn't this just going to mean simpler paths, simpler advertising? I mean, isn't that the end goal? And he said uh, he pretty much agreed with that. So let's do a news round, uh, roundup. We're going to cover kind of some of the stories that came out this week in the ad tech, martech world. Started with uh, yesterday's announcement. So um, PwC put out their second report about the ad tech supply chain. Um, so for those of you who remember, they published a report, I, would, I want to say two years ago, with the scary headline that 15% of the ad spend was unaccounted for. And so the methodology here was that they took, uh, I guess, log files from media buyers from the buy side through the SSPs to the publishers and tried to account for every dollar that went through. It was actually British, so every, every pence, every pound. And it was hard. I mean, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast have actually tried exercises like this in the past. I have personally, I've done this. Um, and it is, right. kind of, it is hard. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, the only thing anyone remembers about that study was this headline, 15% missing, the unaccounted for, they couldn't find it, it just disappeared into the ether. So they're out with a new study, a repeat of that study that says that only 3% of in the new study was missing. And that second point was that 65% of every dollar um, from buyers goes to publishers. So the inverse of that is the, I hate to use the phrase, the ad tech tax. They're claiming a 35% take of all the intermediaries. I have a lot of opinions about this. Uh, <laughs> I think I think what we're on display is methodology problems more than any sort of like trend or progress that you can read into these reports. But I'll, I'll let you guys get it by the apple first. Uh, Eric, you look like you're, you have some opinions. I think the, there's a, there's a coverage a couple of places. The one you, you sent to uh, to us was the Adweek article. I'd recommend folks just you know, kind of do a quick search or, or check the, the show notes for it. It was quite dense in terms of just like breaking down the methodology and how this could be just, you know, kind of chalked up to, to methodology. And I, I think you have a, a good point there. But, you know, um, it's also kind of not surprising, right? Like, you know, with the rise of PMP and curated markets and, you know, all of this non- open exchange type of buying that we've seen over the course of the past few years, like that can account for a 10% change, a 10% swing, a 10% delta right there. So on the one hand, it wasn't surprising, you know, on the ad tech tax side, you know, I'm sure you, you, you both can, can weigh in on that. You know, it's such a annoying name, right? Like none of this stuff is going to work without all the technologies that, you know, allow for serving and targeting and measurement and so on and so forth. So if, you know, this ad tech tax did not exist, the amount of money that would go to publishers would be um, much lower, right? You guys can rant about that. So, um, yeah, it seemed to be, um, you know, interesting. Uh, you know, it was a million impressions. 
you know, could be a bit of a nothing burger, but yeah. I don't know. Let, let you guys talk about it. I'm going to rant about the anti-tax for one minute. Okay. <laughs> first of I was all, about to rant about it. <laughs> first of all, yes. <laughs> it, people are voluntarily choosing what vendors to use. No one has a gun to their head saying, you must put a verification tag on every impression and pay us 10 cents. No, it's voluntary. I never knew of any tax that was voluntary in the history of the world. Secondly, the counter positive, which is if you were not paying this tax, you're assuming that same dollar would flow to the same place, which is absolutely not true. Like the, the fact is the media is flowing because of the technology and this world that these naive people live in where they think the old way of buying media with steaks and martinis would work in digital is just been proven wrong a million times. And lastly, like why it's like, I'm using an Apple computer right now. Am I paying the Apple tax? No, I'm choosing to pay for something that's valuable. I like my laptop. It's not a tax. And this is no different. Um, so that's my little round. And how many, yeah. how many vendors, you know, are responsible for everything that goes into your MacBook, your car, oh, yeah. the banana right. that you buy from Whole Foods? Like there's actually a, um, an ad tech tax for bananas that I saw once. If you do a Google image search, you know exactly <laughs> what, 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 but it's basically like, you know, a banana costs 49 cents, you know, 10 cents goes to the, um, to the farmer, but then it's like a walkthrough of like everything that needs to happen and, you know, all of the necessary services for you to ultimately enjoy this banana in, in your kitchen. It's just, it's how business works. I'll stop. Go ahead. So the supply chain, not a tax. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the Axe tax drives me absolutely batshit bonkers because let's compare it to two industries. I'll start with the one that everyone loves to compare our industry to, the financial markets, right? Mm -hmm. I will share a simple fact with everyone listening to this podcast and the ecosystem around the world. In a single day, our industry processes more transactions than all of the fi major financial indices combined in a month. And I could easily argue that every transaction that is processed in the digital advertising ecosystem is vastly more complex than what is processed in the financial markets. You were talking massive investments in processing power, data science, uh, user experience, data storage. I mean, these are heavy, heavy costs for one of the most complex transactions that occurs in real time on the planet at a volume that is unparalleled. Unparalleled! You know, 35 cents in the dollar to go to some, to go to arguably one of the most complex infrastructures on the planet, one of the most advanced infrastructures on the planet, I think is not a lot to pay to power billions of dollars of transactions a month. That's number one. Let's compare it to the automotive industry and the automotive supply chain. Thousands of vendors go into your car. It's not just Ford or GM. Like they work with thousands of partners in the supply chain to build your car. Right? And everyone charges for those parts. So if you broke down the automotive industry, I mean, what am I doing? Am I paying the battery tax for my, for my <laughs> truck? Am I paying the seatbelt tax for my truck? Like, it's kind of a ridiculous statement to say that there's, a, there's this ad tech tax. And I think, yeah, are there probably some efficiencies that will be recognized over the next several years? Sure. But I mean, are you going to get this down to 10%? No. It's just, I just don't see yeah. it happening. Uh, okay, we've beaten that horse to death. I will just make one technical note because I think a lot of our listeners are really in the weeds and like the tech stuff. And one of the reasons why these studies are hard to do is because Google has this interesting policy where they give all the power to their publishers as to whether to disclose log files or not. 
So when you buy AdX, which by the way is not called AdX, AdX does not have a name, which is another thing I can rant about forever, but let's call it AdX. So if, if you buy an ad on AdX and you, and it goes to a given publisher, there's no way to get a log file for that unless the publisher chooses to give it to you. And so if you're buying on AdX on a hundred publishers, you would need a hundred different publishers to opt in to giving you log files, which makes it very difficult to do these kind of end to end studies, whereas other exchanges, um, have a different policy and, and kind of unify the data. Um, well, let's move on from this. Other news. So um, Twitter, um, which is everyone's favorite topic, a little bit outside of our realm of ad tech, but it's fun to talk about. Uh, they are having a two for one special. Uh, so <laughs> they announced that, um, <laughs> that if you uh, they're matching ad spend uh, for uh, large advertisers who come back to Twitter, um, I think they're matching up to $250,000. So double the impact of your spend. Is this a good idea or desperation? So there, there's, I think, two, two things here. Number one, as a sales tactic, I think this is good. They lost a bunch of advertisers, um, you know, having some sort of, you know, no-brainer enticement to bring them back, I think makes sense, number one. Number two, I've got, just like with my, my background, I've got experience with promotions and stuff like that. So it's a really effective sales tactic and often leads to um, folks just kind of coming back and, and staying, um, particularly if it's tied to trying out an, a new product for the first time, give them some experience there. So, um, so I think it's good. I don't know if uh, Elon has hired, you know, a new sort of head of product marketing or, or, or sales or something like that. But, um, you know, as a, as a tactic, I'm, I'm a believer. Um, I think the other side of this, though, perhaps this should have been tabled until they, you know, like really change the ad product. Right. So it's like, um, you know, ultimately Twitter needs, um, a product to serve, you know, the performance based marketers that make up the backbone of Facebook and Instagram and AdSense. Right. So like, I don't think this product is a DR product where, whoa, I'm going to see great results and I'm going to start pouring money into, into Twitter, number one, or number two, even on the brand side. You know, is this some sort of like interesting, impactful, like video product that, you know, allows yeah. a marketer to capitalize on the moment? I don't think so. Just sort of like coming back to, to Twitter and, and, and testing it out. So tactically, I'm a fan, but I would love to see more innovation around product. And I think if you would combine the two, then I think you got something. Yeah, Twitter has said publicly that I think I may have the number exact wrong, but order of magnitude, eighty percent of their advertising is brand, which is very different from their their cohorts, Meta, and others. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that their data asset is weak, their ad creative is weak, and their ad tech is weak. Um, so it's not a great combination. I'm just picturing. You know, we've all been in ad tech for a long time. How uh, how bad is the fall off from the week before Christmas to the first week of January? It is brutal. Like you could vomit. Oh, it's cliff. Your numbers. I I'm just picturing that that Elon doesn't know that. <laughs> like he, I mean, he probably <laughs> he probably has an intuition that like Christmas season is good and January is not good. But like you can go down seventy percent in a week, and Easily. I'm picturing him totally flipping out um, when he saw those numbers come in for like those the weekly weekly tallies. I'm with Eric on this. I do think this does signify a little blood in the water if I'm an agency uh, working with some of the brands. But I, I think that part of the challenge is, yes, I think revamping the ad product and timing this with a revamped ad product would have made more sense. Now, who knows what the timing of a revamped ad product is for Twitter? I mean, I think there's clear opportunity there. So maybe they just couldn't wait. And yeah, maybe folks that are not as well versed in our industry seeing this massive drop off starting on like December 18th 
and then just plummeting, you know, to your point, 50 to 70%, I think could probably freak some folks out. So maybe this was a knee jerk reaction. But I think, I also think the third issue here is that there are still going, you know, if 80% of their budget is brand, there are still going to be brand sensitivities to this newer open Twitter. Like, you know, I don't want to be adjacent to white supremacist content. Yeah. You know, as an example. And, and I'm not making, that's not a statement on, on what I, you know, what are, whether I think what Twitter's doing is right or wrong. That is the perspective of a brand. Like, hey, Tide, you know, now for, you know, washing your white hoods. Like, I mean, no one, no one <laughs> oh wants to, God. no one wants oh it on Twitter, God. right? So, I mean, I think there's going to be brand sensitivities no matter what free budget they give them in terms of, you know, what kind of content they want to be adjacent to. So yeah, they're, they're going to have to work on moderation. I used to make this joke that, um, you know, Nazis feed their kids mac and cheese just like the rest of us. Um, but that's very off color. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, so, I just, I mean, I just, I, but I think that is the sensitivity that brands are rightfully go- going to have. So they're not going to want to be next to that. All right. So next, next announcement. So um, when we were getting architecture going, I did a series of interviews with clean room. So I uh, talked to really all of them, you know, Havu, Optimal, really interesting tech. People are differentiating in different ways. But then um, AWS announced this week they have a clean room. So in the cloud, native to AWS. And it really brings up this question that's always uh, been around that sector, which is, uh, is, it a, is, it a, is it a sector or is it a feature? Um, is it some, because Snowflake has been investing in, in clean room like technologies for some time as well. I kind of open it to you guys. What do you guys think? Is there a future for clean room as a company? Or maybe there's a good one for Eric since you're an investor. Or is Clean Room just an add-on feature to a database? It's it's the right question, and, and I think one that's continuing to, to unfold. It, it goes to the what is the, the the use case, right? Where are marketers and you know like all constituents going to uh, see value out of this, right? So if the if the value is going to be in analysis, measurement, insights, attribution, all of that stuff, then Clean Rooms are a category. If it is going to be, you know, used as a catalyst to activate, i.e. run ads, then it's probably more of a feature. And, you know, those companies like, you know, AWS and GCP that are, that are doing this and then are, you know, easily connecting to, you know, sort of like a scaled ads product, um, they're probably going to win. So I think it maps to what's the use case. And I don't know if the use case is quite clear yet. But certainly, I think, you know, to the extent that analysis and, and insights and measurement are foundational use case, it becomes, you know, a, a category with a couple of winners. Yeah, on activation, yeah. it's interesting. So in my interviews, I was always asking about activation because in my head, before I did these interviews, I thought activation was the use case. Was And by activation, what we mean is publisher knows a couple of users, advertiser knows a couple of users, they ask through emails and they match. And all the vendors really de-emphasize activation, because, probably because it has the obvious problem of scale. Uh, you only right. match a small amount. And they were all talking the analytics, but I don't know what the reality is. Sorry to interrupt you, Tony. What's your take? The way I look at you know, many players in the space is you're either a feature or a product or a platform. I think depending on the clean room, I think they fall somewhere between product and platform. I could certainly see... You know, you could have clean room as a platform depending on the number of features they're offering suit to nuts. Like, are they offering, you know, so the baseline of a clean room is you're doing some form of server server to match, but now are you offering de identification, anonymization, encryption, data destruction, auditability, 
that's where you start to really move more from product to platform. I don't necessarily see a feature where clean rooms get fully integrated or never say never or, or integrated or acquired by actual media execution platforms. Cause I, then I think you start to get into maybe concerns around data leakage, you know, uh, data integrity or privacy integrity issues, but never, never say never. So I think it depends on the company, but I, I see them somewhere between, I don't see them as purely a feature. I see them somewhere between product and platform, depending on the extensiveness of features that they're offering to either an advertiser or a media company. Yeah, I think this is really a fascinating area because you also have the problem of um, what to match against. Um, and so right. one of the differentiators is, uh, you know, LiveRamp has a clean room. I forget what they're branding for it, but I also interviewed interviewed them about that. And they have this obvious advantage that their clean room works against the LiveRamp identity and spine. Uh, whereas some other clean rooms, they, they try to pitch, well, you come with your identity. You know, you choose whichever identity provider you want, TapAd or LiveRamp or whomever. And so that's another kind of wrinkle here is will clean rooms in the ad tech space really be dominated by data providers or will it be independent? Another uh, angle of this I thought was also very fascinating was what, one of the best use cases I heard for clean rooms is the retail media, uh, which is a big subject we could talk about forever. But the interesting dynamic in retail media is that it's kind of a hub and spoke model where the retailer has all the data. And then they work with many, many hundreds or thousands of advertisers who just want a little bit of that data. Um, and that's an incredibly useful uh, clean room use case. Um, yeah. And look, I mean, look, I mean, also to be clear, I don't think clean rooms are not a panacea. I think they're part of a portfolio solution to addressability, privacy-centric addressability in the future. So I think it's just one, one part of the overall solution. I spoke with a, with a marketer uh, who went to CES and, um, you know, like there's a, I think a cohort of like very leaned in marketers that, um, mm-hmm. that went to CES and, and this person said that, you know, it was, it was in the top three of like conversations that they were all having. So for, for certain, it's important. Fascinating. This has been a great conversation. Are both you guys going into the IB leadership meeting? I'm sure Tony, you're, that's your job to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I fly. I fly on Saturday. Yeah. Eric, you go. I am not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not either. So uh, anyone who's there, go beat Tony. I'm sure he has an unlimited calendar availability uh, to hear <laughs> about your startups or your crazy ideas and pour one out for me and Eric. Hey, can, can we close it out with one question for, for Tony on a, on a local yeah. basis? Let's go. What's your thought on, on that question I, I raised earlier, right? So, you know, you, um, you know, you had the invention of the ad server, the invention of, of RTB. What, what do you think the next transformational technology is or is going to be for um for our space that's going to unlock all you know the, the sort of like next you know great wave of, of innovation uh i don't necessarily think th- there's a specific technology that i can say where i think the next sector innovation lies we've largely i mean there are inefficiencies but i would say we've largely solved for media execution in our ecosystem um i think the next i think the next sector of innovation is going to be attribution and measurement and attribution because measurement attribution has historically been a challenge for this industry, and it's only going to get more challenging in this new world of privacy we are going to operate in. So I think measurement attribution solutions that are privacy-centric is going to be the next wave of innovation in the ecosystem. And this goes back to the conversation around clean rooms. Like, you know, you know are, are you a garden variety vanilla clean room? 
And even, you know, if you are providing, you know, basic de-identification, encryption of user data destruction, that's one thing. Now, if you start to bolt on things like post-campaign measurement, attribution models, like as part of your clean room suite, now, now you move more to that platform spec side of the spectrum if you're a product or platform. But I think that's where we're going to see a lot of innovation. Advertisers are pounding the table uh, on it. You know, there's the cross-media measurement initiative that the WFA and ANA are working on that um, we're, we're hoping to jump into that and that initiative soon as well. So I, I think it's going to be measurement attribution is going to be the next you know five to 10 years. In addition to just what's going to happen in television as budgets, as television becomes more addressable, I think you'll see some, some winners in the addressable television sector. I can't believe you didn't mention yeah. blockchain and Web3. Those would be the obvious next. <laughs> Uh, web right. three, Web three is interesting, but I've, I've yet to see I've yet to see something in Web three that requires some unique take on our current industry standards. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I've just yet to come across it. Uh, we're all waiting for that day as well. Uh, all right, let's let's wrap this up. This was a great conversation. Um, really interesting topics. We we handled the ad tech tax and green uh, ad tech. So this this has uh, really been interesting. Uh, Eric and Tony, thank you so much for joining. All right. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Thank you. This is fun. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.